And I would invite you to get a Bible somewhere or your phone with a Bible app or something and find the book of Galatians again this morning. The book of Galatians. In the New Testament, just a little ways in. Galatians chapter 1. As we continue together our study through this letter, this ancient letter from an apostle to a group of churches, and it has so much for us. One of Satan's greatest strategies to try to destroy Christianity is not to get people to renounce belief in God altogether. He does that for some. He gets a few that way. But rather, his most widespread strategy is to lead people into believing a false message that is couched in the terminology of Christianity and to trick them into believing that they are right with God while, in fact, turning their hearts and minds far away from the, the one true God as He really exists. Turning their minds away from the one means by which they might be reconciled to that God and substituting for them another message that gives them a false hope that they are right with God. That is, honestly, that is Satan's one of Satan's greatest strategies. And it's not a new strategy. It's not something that he's only thought of the last 20 years or 50 years or something like that. This this is as old as the letter to the Galatians and of course older. Paul is dealing with that. This is a letter from, as I said, an apostle, a hand-picked representative of Jesus Christ Himself writing to a group of churches in Galatia, which was an ancient area in what is today modern Turkey. He's writing to believers, to churches, members of churches, at least people who confess faith in Christ. And he's warning them, and this is God's warning for us, by the way, he's warning his people of the grave danger in departing from the faith by accepting a false message. And in this letter, Paul expresses astonishment that the people in the Galatian churches would so quickly abandon or be tempted to abandon the gospel that they had first received. So take note of this little portion of his letter here this morning. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you 
a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Genesis chapter 3, we find Satan, that old serpent. And the Bible says that he was the most subtle of all of the creatures that God had made. And he brings a very subtle temptation for these believers and for believers today, a very subtle temptation by raising up false teachers. Not people who came into those churches and said, hey, we want you to forget the gospel. That's, that's not important. It's not true. They didn't come with that message. They came saying, hey, we have further teaching to you about the gospel that you heard. We want to tell you the full gospel now. You heard part of it, but we want to help you to come to a fuller understanding. And of course, the reality is that what these teachers were doing when they came into the churches in that ancient place, they were really distorting the gospel. But their distortion of the gospel was couched in terms of the gospel itself. They didn't say, we have another message for you that's not the gospel. They came in saying, we're preaching to you the gospel. We just want to help you understand the gospel. So it is that terminology that then frames their false narrative. Charles Spurgeon, a long time ago, dealt with uh, what he considered to be a, a false gospel, and I think rightly so, as theological liberalism was creeping into the churches, in the fellowship of churches there in the UK this kind of liberal, unbelieving theology that denies a lot of the Scripture. And and he said it this way, they want to lay their eggs of heresy in the nests of our churches. And so it was in the churches of Galatia. These false teachers were coming in and, and laying their eggs in the nests of these churches that Paul had established. And so he's very concerned for these churches. They're like his... Sons and daughters, he wants to see them protected from wrong-headed thinking. Now, we don't know everything about these false teachers. But what we do know, we know from reading Paul's counter-arguments in the letter against what they were saying. It's kind of like if you've ever been uh, in a room and overheard one half of a telephone conversation. Somebody's on the phone and you can tell a little bit by the tone of their voice and by the topic of their conversation who they're talking to maybe. You ever sort of played that game in your own mind when your spouse is on the phone? I wonder who she's talking to. And, and you can kind of pick up in time, even only hearing half of the conversation about what the other people must be saying. So that's the way we have to try to understand what's going on in those Galatian churches all that long ago, was we look at what Paul was saying, the way he was responding, and uh, we can surmise some things. 
We don't know everything, as I said, about these false teachers, but we do know enough. We know that they were distorting the gospel, the basic Christian message. They were distorting the Christian message in such a way that it really wasn't the gospel anymore at all. In chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul makes it clear that these false teachers insisted that the believers in the Galatian churches must be circumcised if they were truly going to belong to God. Now, you have to have a background in understanding something about the Old Testament for that to even make sense to our modern ears. Why are they discussing that? Of course, in the Old Testament, circumcision of all of the males of Israel was a non-negotiable mark of being part of Israel, the people of God. Even if you were a Gentile man, a non-Israelite man, who wanted to become a part of the people of God, you would need to be circumcised. And so the argument now of these false teachers seems to be faith in Christ, being baptized into Christ, that is not enough for you. That's a good start. Paul got you started on the road to being a Christian. But now, you need to go on and to be circumcised if you're truly going to be one of God's people. Because God commanded it. And after all, God never told people to stop being circumcised, did He? They might reason. We also know from reading the letter and seeing how Paul responds to them that they these people were probably influenced by, um, and perhaps were, but at least were influenced by, those people who were described in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, as the quote-unquote, the circumcision party. I mean, that was kind of what they were known for. And they seem further to have some kind of connection with the Jerusalem church. As you know, that was the sort of the mother church where the gospel first began to be preached. Uh, we also know that they forbid uh, breaking the, these these people, whoever they were, uh, this circumcision party, forbid uh, breaking bread, having fellowship with uncircumcised Gentiles. They had already gone up to Antioch and stirred up a lot of trouble among the churches there. And now, Paul hears that they've come to the Galatian churches as well. And this is such a problem for the churches that it eventually will have to be addressed by a gathering of Christian leaders in Jerusalem. And there, the false teacher's position was made clear at that meeting. In Acts chapter 15, we have the record of it. And in verse 1, the position of the false teachers is stated this way, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the false teachers, this is, this is the circumcision party. They're probably influencing these false teachers who are coming now to the churches in Galatia. Also, we, uh, I think we can... Uh, it's implied in chapter 4, verses 8 and following, 
that uh, these people demanded also the observance of a religious ritual calendar, certain feasts and certain holy days, which given their emphasis on circumcision and the law would seem to be an indication that what they're demanding is that these believers, these Gentile Christians, should keep the Old Testament feasts and holy days. Paul also, by the Holy Spirit, reveals in this letter what the real motivation is for these false teachers. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says that their desire is to be made much of. You ever known somebody like that? They just want to be well thought of in their community and among their peers. That was part of what was motivating these people. And in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he says that they, quote, want to make a good showing in the flesh so that they can boast that they influence the people in the Galatian churches to go on and be circumcised. They want to be able to say that they were the ones who brought that about. But even on an even deeper level, he says that they're actually motivated by the fear of man. They do this, he says in 6.12, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not talking about the Galatian believers, but about the false teachers. They Part of the motivation for their pushing this onto these uh, believers in the churches was that they might not be um, persecuted. So apparently then, there were some situations where even Gentile believers could be persecuted. Certainly, Jewish believers in Jesus uh, might be persecuted uh, if they uh, refused circumcision. Believers in Jesus as the Messiah, of course in those days, were considered to be uh, part of Judaism, just kind of a sect of the Jews, but by these people, they were considered to be only halfway in. And apparently, that brought some persecution for these uncircumcised believers. Um, so who, who was it that would have been persecuting them uh, for this kind of position? Some people have surmised that maybe the persecution came from Rome, from the empire. Um, there were times, for example, when the Roman emperor demanded that everybody in the empire give a sign of their allegiance to him. Even the emperors, in some cases, even thought of themselves or portrayed themselves as gods in human flesh. And so you really literally had to almost worship the emperor if you were going to avoid uh, hardship, at least, and persecution, perhaps. But uh, there were times in in the history of Rome when they did make exceptions for certain peoples uh, because of their religious scruples. And at times, sometimes, exception was made for the Jews. And so if someone was a circumcised Jew, maybe he would fall under that exception, which might explain then the motive for uh, fear uh, if, if, we, if we get these people circumcised and they can fall under this umbrella of being part of the, the, the exception to having to give um, allegiance to Rome. It might explain the fear of persecution, but it doesn't seem to me to explain uh, the false teachers' boast in their circumcision and the circumcision of those that they had influence over that. I mean, Rome 
they didn't care, you know, it wasn't a, an impressive thing to them that, that someone was circumcised. So I think what's going on here is that the pressure, the persecution that's tending to come upon these people is from the Jews themselves, particularly from a group of Jews that are known as zealots, the zealots. This was, these was, uh, this was a group of people who, as the name implies, had a great zeal for religion. Um, they were very scrupulous in some ways, in, in certain ways, about their religion. They, uh, some groups of them had very strict um, desire to be separated from all uncleanness and, and wrong. Uh, they had a, an intense hatred of Rome and a willingness to use violence to try to get out from under what they saw as Roman oppression. And of course, we know that the zealots were very active between the time of Christ and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And uh, these people, in fact, one of Jesus' uh, followers, right, was a former zealot, Simon the Zealot. There was a writer in the third century uh, who, who said this, quote, the adherents of this particular party, if they happen to hear anyone maintaining a discussion concerning God and his laws, and supposing such a one to be uncircumcised, they will closely watch him, and when they meet a person of this description in any place alone, they will threaten to slay him if he does not undergo the rite of circumcision. So there is at least some evidence that these people, that this was a really big deal to them, and that they were they were willing to persecute um, people who uh, refused to be uh, circumcised. So all of that to say this, it seems like, and this is, this is important to what we're going to read here, okay? It seems like that the false teachers who are coming into the Galatian churches were motivated, on the one hand, by a desire to be well thought of by those with a real zeal for the law of God, and also to escape their persecution by not being considered lax in what they were uh, doing to influence um, others around them. The problem, of course, in all of this was that in their zeal for the law, they were actually diminishing the sufficiency of Christ. They were saying, in essence, you've got a, you've got a good start, but that's not enough. And I just want to tell you this morning, friends, that any quote-unquote gospel that is Christ plus something else is not the true gospel, but rather is a diminishing of the sufficiency of Christ alone. Now, in arguing this way, Paul is making four main points in our text in verses 6 through 10. He's making four main points which have really immediate application for every one of us here uh, today. The first thing we see in this text is very clear. Paul is saying, listen, there is only one gospel. Notice verse 6 again. I want you to see it in the text. 
He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you from the grace, uh, called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he clarifies not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Friends, there is only one gospel. There's only one message that saves. There's only one way to God. There there is no other alternative path. Any alternative path that is put forward as another way to God is actually a distortion of the truth that is not good news at all. It is not the gospel because there is only one gospel. And yet, Paul refers to the message of these false teachers as another what? Another gospel. Why does he call it another gospel? Because that is the terminology that the false teachers were using. That's what they were calling it. They weren't saying, we come in with another message altogether. They're saying, we're coming in with the the gospel. Here's an important point. False teachers almost always couch their lies in biblical Bible terminology. I wouldn't say biblical, but Bible terminology. Can I say it again? False teachers almost always couch their lies in Bible terminology. Mormons claim to be the church of what? Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not the church of Joseph Smith, the church of Jesus Christ. They use the terms, right? Jesus, Christ. But we need to ask ourselves, what do they envision by saying Jesus Christ? Who are they really talking about? Theological liberals claimed to believe in, quote, the authority of the Bible. They could sign their names and say, I believe in the authority of the Bible. But they limited that authority in their minds to things that were rational to them. Those are the things that are authoritative. Certain proponents of the quote-unquote free grace movement sometimes talk about repentance or the lordship of Jesus Christ. But do they mean what the Bible means by repentance? T.D. Jakes, you've probably heard that name. T.D. Jakes can talk about the triune God. He does talk about the triune God, the Trinity. But he doesn't mean what Christians have historically meant by the Trinity. Open theists like Greg Boyd can affirm that, quote, God knows all things. But they do so by adding, He can know all things that are knowable. And then by limiting what is knowable only to things that have already happened. Or even Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine affirms salvation by grace. Sometimes it's caricatured in other ways and, and maybe kind of a, what I guess is a shorthand way of trying to point out faults. 
But they would affirm salvation by grace. But the question is, what do they mean by grace? Is what they mean by grace what the Bible means by grace? In other words, the point of all of this is that just because you hear an internet preacher or your friend at work use Bible language doesn't mean that he's proclaiming the gospel, that he's affirming the true gospel. We need to ask ourselves, what do those people mean by the terms that they're using? And that's going to require a lot of discernment for God's people. I mean, what he's calling us to do here in this text is something, I'm saying, that's going to require a lot of discernment because the terminology is the same, but the meanings are, in some cases, very different from what is presented in the whole of Scripture. To be discerning means that we're going to have to be quick not to jump to conclusions about what people mean. Either for in affirming what they say is the gospel, or against in saying that's a false gospel. We need not to be quick in jumping to conclusions, but to listen, to read, to hear, to try to understand what they mean by what they say. We're going to, it means we're going to have to define terms. Part of uh, the job of a good lawyer in this world, right? I mean, part, the essence of a good lawyer's job is being careful with terms. Law cases are decided on the basis of the meaning of terms. The Supreme Court argues about the meaning of words because that makes a difference. So Christians have to be in, have to be in, uh, constantly vigilant to define our terms about the gospel in a biblical way and to continue to demand the definition of terms as we interact with other people who are claiming to proclaim the Christian message. And it also means that we're going to have to think through the implication of some teaching for all of the doctrines of the Bible. You know, it's easy to hear something that somebody pulls from a verse of Scripture or a passage and say, you know, that sounds like what that's saying, but we must continue to do the hard work of analyzing the relationship of what that uh, person is purporting that the text says in relation to all of the other doctrines that the Bible teaches throughout its whole. There is only one gospel. And there are many times people who come proclaiming another gospel, proclaiming a, to, to, to just clarify the gospel when in reality they're preaching something that is a diversion, a distortion of the true Christian message. Paul says there is no other gospel. There is only one way of salvation. There's only one way for you to get to heaven. John, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, a passage I hope you know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And of course, there are a lot of people, I mentioned this last week, there are a lot of people who when we talk like that, when we insist that what Jesus said was true about the exclusivity of the gospel and the only narrow way, they they look at us and they say, well, that is very narrow. That is narrow-minded of you. You're being bigoted. You're being unkind. There are lots of other good and sincere people in other religions or maybe people who aren't even religious that are are really trying to seek after God. Uh, Would you condemn all of them? It sounds like you're being very narrow. Someone like this might say, you know, I believe that there are actually many paths to God. I'm sure you've talked to people like this. Right? Sometimes people use the illustration of blind men trying to describe the elephant, right? Have you heard that one? Three blind men trying to describe the elephant, and one's got a hold of its tail, one's got a hold of its of its uh, trunk, and the other's got a hold of its ear. And one says, this is what it's like, and the other says, no, 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 you don't understand, this is what it's like. And everybody's got their own ways, their own descriptions of how you get to heaven, but the reason that they're all right is they're all describing the same thing. They've just each got a little piece of the truth. And that's the way all religions are, right? Everybody's got a little bit of the truth. Everybody's got a little bit of some good idea about how to get closer to God. And when we put it all together and you take a little bit from each one, you know, hopefully you can, you can make it. But of course, the problem with that kind of illustration is it's, it assumes that, that everyone is as blind as the next. That no one is given eyes to see. That no one has a clear and definitive revelation from God about what the right way is. And then when we begin to agree on that, then we can do a, the hard work of digging into that word from God to understand Him, to understand His way of salvation. We uh, we must allow God's revelation to be the absolute determiner of what we believe, and to define to define our terms according to that basic revelation. Because Paul says there is only one gospel. Secondly, turning from that true gospel message is a desertion from God Himself. Notice again what he says here in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting what? Him. Him who called you. You are deserting Him. In other words, he's saying to the Galatian people that if someone turns to a perversion of the gospel, He's not just abandoning a certain viewpoint or a certain theology. He is deserting God Himself. This is to highlight, of course, the gravity of such a shift. He's saying, hey, listen, you haven't just changed churches, changed denominations. You've left God. If you follow a false gospel, you have abandoned God. And specifically, of course, in the case of the Galatians, he says, you are deserting Him who called you in grace. In adding some work 
to salvation, in this case, circumcision primarily, in adding some work to salvation, they were leaving grace behind. So Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So he writes to the Galatians, you are in, in, in embracing this false doctrine or, or in, in, in being led and tempted to em, em, embrace this false gospel, you are in danger of abandoning the God who called you in grace and in the grace of what? In the grace of Christ. Because grace is only grace when it comes through Christ and when it comes through Christ alone. Any additional demand for salvation that someone makes beyond Christ is an abandonment of the gospel. It's an abandonment, Paul says, of God Himself. And of course, if that's the case, then thirdly, we must categorically reject all false gospels in the strongest of terms. Paul is telling those Galatian Christians, and through the ages he's speaking the message to us, that we must categorically reject all false gospels in the strongest of terms. Here's the way he says it in verse 8. Take note again. Verse 8. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let that person be what? Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching, and when he says, now he's moving from the hypothetical first line that he gave uh, to the reality, this is happening. If anyone in, in, in your midst is actually preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that, we, that you receive, let him be, and once again there's our word, accursed. Let that person be under the curse of God. That's the, that's the language here. And this is the strongest kind of language you can imagine. We hear it so often now that it becomes meaningless. People say, God damn it. God damn you. Something along that line. This is, this is almost the terminology really that's being used here. Not, not to be used lightly, but to be used with regard to people who knowingly and persistently are preaching a gospel that is not the true gospel. This is a word that refers to the curse of God. It's the Greek word anathema. You've probably heard that, to pronounce an anathema on someone. It means to be given up or to be given over to God for complete destruction. It translates the Hebrew word that was used to describe certain pagan cities in the promised land. Remember when Israel went into the land of Canaan and those cities and the people and everything in it were supposed to be, remember, 
completely and utterly wiped out. It was, and that was, in fact, a foretaste of the eternal judgment of God. The kind of judgment that God poured out, for example, on Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter says that was a, that was a testimony, that was a foretaste of the kind of eternal judgment that God is going to pronounce on all who reject Him, His Son, and His Gospel. That's why now here he says, if someone's preaching to you another gospel, he comes under that kind of curse from God, that kind of pronouncement of eternal judgment. In other words, in other words this, friends, listen. We are, as God's people, we are to leave no doubt where we stand and where God stands about a quote-unquote another gospel. It is to be clear beyond doubt. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the original Confession of Faith uh, there, and the 1689 London Baptist Confession, who uh, followed in their footsteps, uh, spoke of the Roman papacy as the quote-unquote Antichrist. Um, They left no doubt as to what they understood as the true gospel in opposition to what they felt like they believed, and and in fact was rightly so, was a false gospel. This is not, of course, to say that there are no Catholics who are saved, or that every single Catholic teacher out there is presenting a false gospel. But it is to be reminded that the church, the Catholic church, has never fundamentally altered its denials of salvation by grace alone. They left no doubt. They said, here's where we stand. This is what we believe is the gospel. And this we identify as a false gospel. 300 years later, the well-known British pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, along with the... uh, the famous Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer and and many others actually, criticized Billy Graham's ecumenical evangelistic crusades because he partnered in those crusades with Catholics and with liberal, unbelieving Protestants who denied the gospel. And even though they considered Graham himself to be a true brother in Christ, they criticized him for failing to do just what Paul commands us to do here, to send a clear and distinct message to say without doubt that is another gospel. And his failure to do so in any kind of distinct way failed to, uh, to, to, to sound anything like Paul's statement here, let him be accursed. As, um, as a result, such critics of Graham were called fundamentalists and reactionaries for seeking to be true to this text. Friends, we are called upon by God, by none other than God through the Apostle Paul, to leave no doubt where we stand and where God stands about a false gospel. Now, I have to caution us 
that we need to guard against overstating our differences. There is that temptation of making everything a fundamental gospel issue. I think in general that's a much lesser temptation than what we face today. Almost so much that I hesitated to to uh, mention it, but it it certainly we we certainly do want to to remember that it, it can be a temptation too. I'm reminded of the persecution of the English dissenting congregations in the 1600s for failing to conform not to the gospel but to the Anglican view of the gospel, or the persecution of Baptist churches in New England by the very people who'd fled from persecution in Old England or failing to proclaim the gospel as understood by those. We can have, in other words, denominational differences to a large extent and still have essential agreement on the gospel. But we must be unequivocal about any fundamental perversion of the gospel. Paul says it this way, Let him be accursed. And we must remember also that the truth of the message depends on its content. That is, whether it accords with the gospel, not on the messenger. Because Paul says, right, even if if we came back to you preaching a perversion of the gospel, or an angel came down from heaven, you'd say, wow, this, is, this has got to be the gospel, right? He said, if it's not in line with the gospel as it was revealed in the Word of God, it was preached to you, you received, by which you received the Holy Spirit, by which you came into, into Christ, if it is not the gospel of salvation in Christ alone, no matter who preaches it, you need to stand against it and make that stand clear. You know, I think we all, all of us, appreciate good teachers, good preachers, Bible teachers, Bible preachers. And for a time, as we're growing in our understanding of the Word, we really, literally just rely on them, right? Almost every one of us, no matter how much we know about the Word, is in some sense just sort of relying on some teacher or preacher that we trust. But ultimately, we must remember that we have to measure everything by the gospel, by the Word of God. In other words, I, I want to admonish us all to be careful that our appreciation for Bible teachers and Bible preachers never becomes blind devotion. He says it doesn't matter who the messenger is. If they come with another gospel, let him be accursed. Paul had apparently been accused by these false teachers of being a people pleaser. But he makes clear by such strong language now that he is anything but. And in doing so, he sets an example for us. Fourthly, that we must live for the approval of God and not for the approval of man. That's the fourth thing we see in this text. We must live for the approval of God and not for the approval of man. Look in verse 10. He says, for now I am... He asks the question, right? Rhetorical question. For am I now seeking the approval of men? 
or of God. He said, you've just heard what I've said. You think I'm trying to please men or God? Am I trying to please man? If Paul's trying to please people, if he's trying to be liked by everyone, would he condemn these false teachers in such strong terms? Of course, the real danger for us in standing up for the gospel is that we want everybody to like us, to think that we're nice. And that's really one of the big roadblocks in saying, this is the gospel, that is not, that's false doctrine. One of the big roadblocks in that, one of the big dangers, one of the big temptations is just this desire that most of us have innately to want to be seen as nice people. People who don't stir the pot too much. People that everybody likes. We are in danger of being unwilling to sacrifice our own image for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. Maybe you felt this pressure when you were talking to a person who you, it began to dawn on you that they were a member of a cult. And the pressure not to rub that person too much the wrong way. To be seen as a nice, reasonable person. Maybe you felt this pressure even when you're talking to a, a neighbor or a friend who is saying something that really denies the gospel. When I ask you, friends, are we living to please men or are we living to please God? One day, we may, it may be that we even face real persecution for taking a clear gospel stand. That if we say, this is the Word of God and anything else is false, that this is what God says, this is the gospel, this is truth, to take a stand like that will actually bring not only just people's disapproval, but their persecution. And, of course, in truth, that's the way it was for these false teachers. They were really motivated by the fear of man, wanting to not be um, hounded by the zealots. This is partly what led them to embrace the false gospel. And in many ways, we all still struggle, don't we, with the danger of trying to please people more than pleasing God? You can just examine your heart right now. Isn't that true? Aren't there times in your life when you face that? You just want to please people. And it ends up putting a damper on what we know we should have said. It's a kind of slavery, isn't it? It, it sort of binds us and keeps us from doing what we know we should have done and saying what we know we should have said. Proverbs says it this way, the fear of man lays a snare. Proverbs 29.25, it binds you, it keeps you from doing what you know you should do. You do the opposite thing from what you know you should do because you want to keep someone's good opinion of you. You don't want them to think you're a weirdo or a quack or a cantankerous person. You want them to like you. And so you deny what you know you ought to do, what you know is the truth. And I want to say this morning, maybe there's someone here that your, your desire to be well thought of by someone else is what's keeping you away from Jesus Christ. 
that your desire to please someone else is threatening to damn your soul, to keep you away from God, to keep you from eternal life, to keep you from faith in Jesus. Oh, this is a great snare. Paul says that none of us, we, we, we must all of us guard that we are not led astray by a desire to please men more than we are to please God. At the end of the verse, he says it this way, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot be a servant of Christ and the slave of man living for the good opinion of others more than anything else, fearing what someone else will do to you or think about you if you take a stand for the gospel. You cannot be a slave of Christ and be afraid to contend for the truth. The gospel, friends, is the most important message that you could ever hear. It's the only message that saves. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's God's gospel, not ours. And because of that, we must be faithful with the gospel, to the gospel. We are bound. We are servants of Christ, not servants of men. Bound to be faithful to the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, please give us a joyful awareness of our slavery to You. Our slavery to Christ. We are happy servants of Jesus. And that means that we are absolutely submitted to You in whatever You say. We accept it as truth. And we will stand for it as the truth, regardless of the perversions around us. Lord, today we're asking you for courage, for faith, for freedom of the fear of man. That we would stand for the gospel. We ask especially for what may come our way and what certainly is in the path already for many of your people as we face persecution for the sake of the gospel. We ask that you would continue to give your people in that moment the clarity, the carefulness, the graciousness, and the courage, the boldness to make the gospel clear Lord, when we need it, we pray now for our for your grace for now and for those times when we're going to need it in the days to come. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.